Okay, so chapter one is there's something called Tzadik Rasha Benini, and I don't really know what they are, but um, I'll find out. The key to understanding these personas, I th- actually, I think the correct plural of persona is persona, right? No one's going to correct me, are they? I believe so, yeah. Um, the key to understanding these three different types of guys, or gals, is something about Shtenafoshus, this doctrine of two souls. One of those souls is the, which is the first one we found out about? Animal. The animal soul, uh, which is the primal instinct for self-perpetuation. In chapter two, we find out about its diametric opposite, which is the drive for godliness, godliness or I want to revisit this just a, just a tad, just a tad. Um, because it's so, I think, you know, every, every time I learn Tanya, I come across a new Tanya. So I'm going through it with you, and, and it's new again to me again. Um, one of the things that I'm becoming more cognizant of is the degree of, of, how how radical the Hiddish is, the novel um, worldview is, vis-a-vis the, the soul and the difference between the, the godly soul and the animal soul. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think sometimes the way, even, even people who understand that there's a conflict of interests between Let's say, usually we say body and soul, okay? But let's say our physical side and our spiritual side. Um, Usually, the way that we frame that is the body wants physical comfort, wants physical pleasure, wants food, wants drink, wants a... Comfortable place to sleep, all that type of stuff. And the soul wants wisdom and enlightenment and truth and beauty. And what I'm trying to tell you is that's not really a conflict between opposite drives. Those two drives are just two different positions on the same exact track. In other words, the body wants what it likes, what makes, what it finds pleasurable, and the soul wants what it likes, what it finds pleasurable. The only difference is a soul is like a body, but with better taste. So bodies like greasy pizza and french fries, metaphorically speaking, and souls like I don't know, the, the wood brick oven pizza with the goat cheese on it it's supposed to be so fancy for $20 a personal pie. That's what the soul likes. So, in other words, the way that most people come at this is don't go for the cheap stuff. Don't be bought off by Elam Hazeh, by the pleasures of this world. I've got better pleasures for you. Elam Haba, the spiritual pleasures. Upgrade. And that's not what Tanya is saying at all. 
That's not what Tanya is saying at all. Tanya is not saying that the body likes what it likes and the soul likes what it likes, so let's upgrade from body desires to soul desires. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying like this. The body and the soul are two totally different directions. Totally different tracks. And by body here, I don't just mean the body because the body's a lump of clay. I mean its animating force, which we all refer to here in Tanya as nefjabamis, animal soul, or primal desire, or, or drive for self-perpetuation. Call it whatever you want. But the point is like this. The body and the soul are diametric opposites. When I'm saying body and soul, I mean nefjabamis, nefesholikism, animal soul, godly soul. The animal soul wants self-perpetuation which is kind of normal, because that's pretty much how everything in the world is programmed, is for self-perpetuation. The godly soul cannot abide by that tautology, that existential tautology. In other words, the body can say, I'm here, I, I, I work in order to eat, so I can go work in order to eat. Snake eating its tail. I exist in order that I can continue to exist so that I may exist and perpetuate my existence. The, the, the godly soul cannot abide by that, that, that existential tautology. It cannot say, I exist in order to exist. It's the opposite. I exist in order to surrender my existence, to lose separate selfhood, and to become subsumed in everythingness, in oneness. So it's not just that the body and the soul have different tastes and they're competing for, you know, which restaurant we're going to go out to tonight. The body and the soul are opposites. The body, or nefeshabamis, or, or animal drive, or whatever we're going to call it, is I'm here to preserve myself. The godly soul, or the second soul, or the, the neshama, whatever you want to call it, says I am here to surrender myself. Not to anyone and anything, no. Specifically, I'm here to surrender myself to the one. With a capital O. The oneness. So, if the animal soul seeks self-perpetuation, or sometimes it goes beyond self-perpetuation, and the animal soul perfects self-perpetuation to an art form, and it becomes self-enhancement self-fulfillment, you know, all those important things that society convinces us that we must have. And we're allowed to bowl over anyone in our path in order to get them. If the animal soul wants self-perpetuation or even self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, all that self, 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 you know what the godly soul wants? Self-annihilation. Now I know when I say that word, it gets the wrong reaction and it doesn't mean to you what it means to me. And I do it anyway, because I trust you, that you'll listen for another 90 seconds, and I'll have a chance to explain what it does mean. Self-annihilation doesn't mean I'm going to hurt myself, God forbid. That would be crazy. Why would I hurt myself? <coughs> it doesn't mean self-destruction. If I destroy this cup, I tear it up into pieces. There's still pieces of cup. I've got to take out a lighter like a little 12-year-old pyro, and I'll melt up the cup. There'll still be blobs of melted plastic in the cup. I, didn't I, I destroyed the form. I didn't really 
make it non-existent. It's still there. Annihilation, the Yiddish term, is Selbstvernichtung, self-annihilation. Annihilation, where else do you see that shoyrish, that etymology? Like creation ex nihilo, right? Creation ex nihilo is the Latin term for it. Creation something from nothing. nothing. Okay, so you're saying before there was a world, there was nothing? Come on, Jews. Before there was a world, there was Hashem. In fact, there was always Hashem. There will always be Hashem. So when we say creation something from nothing, we don't really mean nothing. We mean the real something. The, yeah, yeah. So what we call the Yeshoamiti. So from our perspective, what's a yesh? What really exists? What's empirically evident to us? That Because we, we, we are so reliant on phenomenological stimuli. So to us, the table is a yesh. But it's not really a yesh because it doesn't have absolute existence. It doesn't have a priori existence. It's being forced into existence every second. And if it wouldn't be forced to existence, if Hashem wouldn't be recreating, it would revert to its essential nothingness. nothingness. Other than so, other than a shep, right. So, the table is really the yesh ha-nivra, relative existence, or existence from a perspective of creation, but it's an ayin ho-amiti, it's really the real nothingness, because it doesn't, it exists, but it doesn't have its own existence. It's not ontologically independent. Hashem, however, is ontologically independent. He is ex a priori existence. He doesn't need a cause or a force bringing him into being. Therefore, he cannot leave existence. He is existence. He's the Yeshua Amiti. He really exists. So when we say creation ex nihilo, creation something from nothing, we don't really mean something from nothing. What we really mean is relative something emerging from absolute something. When we say the soul, therefore, the godly soul yearns for self-annihilation, what it means is not something crazy or, or hurtful or, or, or destructive. I, I think that, that that pension can be misdirected if it isn't fulfilled in, in, in the proper way, which we call bittle. If it's not fulfilled in the proper way, I think it can be misdirected and channeled. I think, I think that's where Freud got the idea of the death wish. Like the two sons of Aaron. Or like the two sons of Aaron, right? That's right. That they were too sensitive and they wanted to leave this world. That's correct, yeah. They entered a holy place and they said, what do we need a body for? And they left. That's right. Good point. So if it's not given a proper direction, then yes, it looks like self-destruction. It's not self-destruction. self-annihilation, which is actually not a violent word. It's a very peaceful word. Self-annihilation means I become one with the oneness of everything with the real one. And, and, and it's not violent, and it's not scary. In fact, you don't even have to die to do it. That's, dying is easy. You do it once. Like Golda Meir once said, when she was Secretary of Defense in 1967, all these Anglos were flying to Israel for the war effort. In the middle of the Six-Day War! And you had these college kids flying to Israel. It's crazy, right? But that's the Pintalayit. That's the, you know, they felt that Jewish essence come out, and they're flying into the middle of a Mokum Sakon, Mamash. And after the Six-Day War, miraculously the war is over, and they start getting on planes and flying home. So Golda says, I don't get it. 
in the time of war, you were all willing to come here and die with us. In the time of peace, you're not willing to stay and live with us? So forth. Dying is easy. Living is tough. I could be self-annihilating right now in front of you. You wouldn't know it. Self-annihilation just means that the regular ego, E-G-O, edging God out, is set aside and I allow myself to be an instrument. Or like somebody once told me, I remember speaking one time in San Antonio, Texas, and I was speaking about selflessness, and some lady comes over to me afterwards, and she says, um, you know what you're talking about? And I said, uh, yeah. She says, well, there's a word for it. Yeah. She says, beetle. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, beetle, beetle, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. She says, no, beetle. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it. She said, no, no, be-tool, be-a-tool. Beetle, self-abnegation or self-annihilation, is be-tool, be the instrument. Be the instrument. So that's my very long parenthetical comment as we're reviewing. I didn't mean to get into this, but... So, so we, we learned that prior to the soul being sent down to earth, yeah. uh, the soul, in a sense, says, no, 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 I don't want to go. Yeah. God says, you're going. Right. Right? So when that soul is implanted in, in a person, it doesn't continue to say, let me out of here, yeah, let does. me come back up. Yeah, so the question is, the soul doesn't want embodiment. The question is, does it change its mind? Mm -hmm. um, no. No. It says in Pirkei against your will do you live. The soul constantly, like the flame that flickers, it wants to leave the wick. It wants to go upward. It wants to leave. Now, finally, by the very, very end, the soul realizes, hold on a second, all these mitzvahs maizias, these behavior mitzvahs, like we were speaking about last week in chapter 4, that through the levushim, the garments, through the behaviors and the mitzvahs, you actually become more one with Hashem than you do while hanging out in heaven and watching the pyrotechnic show. So at that point, right before 120 years old, the soul says, wow, we can accomplish so much. I can become so one with God down here. And they say, excellent, you did it. Come on back, come on back up. And that's what the Mishnah means when it says, against your will do you live, against your will do you die. They get you when you're coming and going. Just when you're comfortable, it's time to get out. I can't fall asleep, but once I fall asleep, I don't want to wake up. But is the soul say the, the godly soul saying, I don't want to be here, but I am uh, demonstrating beetle to beetle, yes. beetle to the will of Hashem. Yes. So the godly soul's attitude of being in this world is, you put me, you pushed me out of an airplane with a parachute and and a radio that barely works. But if this is the mission that my maker has sent me on, then I surrender myself to the mission. But I'm not having fun down here. As opposed to the animal soul says, whoa, Disney World, this is the place. This is it. Why didn't we come here sooner? Okay. So anyways, that was, a, that was a side point. But I just wanted to be clear. Godly soul and animal soul are not just uh, debating over whether we're going to go to the fancy restaurant or the cheap greasy pizza restaurant. They're, they're diametric opposites. Animal soul is self-perpetuation. Godly soul is self-annihilation. And self-annihilation is not violent. It's actually a, a, a peaceful... It is the ultimate in, in serenity where there's no separate selfhood anymore. 
I can surrender and I can just be the instrument. I can be the vehicle. And, and it doesn't require death or hurting yourself or anything morbid like that. When, when you're totally just focused on a mitzvah, that's self-annihilation. Self is out of there, and now I'm just the vehicle. Now it's just God working through me. Okay. Anyways, back to... That was a very long parenthetical statement, but back to our review of the chapters. All right. So that was chapter two. That was chapter two, that whole thing. Chapter three. The soul has an anatomy. We talked about the composition of the soul, which generally speaking, there are, well, we'll say how many capacities the soul have? Ten capacities. And they're a mirror image of the ten spheroids that Hashem emanates. It's the interface between infinity and the finite, are the spheroids. And the mirror image exists. Um, think of like fractals, you know, like M.C. Escher painting. Or in nature, where like this, the shape of the leaf is the shape of the tree. You ever notice that? The shape of a leaf is the shape of a tree. Go out and look. It's, it's pretty cool. So, yeah. So, the configuration of the spheroids is repeated in, in microcosm as the, the shape of the, you know, so-called shape, the configuration of the of the koiches and nefesh, the soul powers. And in general, how many general categories are these ten capacities divided into? Two. Two. And what are they namely? What are the two categories? Intellect. intellect and emotion. Okay. And what's the relationship between intellect and emotion? Metaphorically, what do we call it? Parent-child, right? So what we cogitate upon, we come to care about. Okay. Chapter four. That was last week. Should be fresh in our minds. Chapter four was that... Whereas in chapter 3 we spoke about what the soul is in detail. Chapter 4 is about what the soul does, how it expresses itself, modes of expression, right? And we said, how many modes of expression are there? How many, first of all? Three. And namely they are? Action, speech. Action, speech, indeed. Okay, fine. And we went down at length about how... I mean, action, action speech, and thought. Action, indeed, or something. Action, speech, and thought. And we went on at length about how thought is a behavior, right? Okay. Um, and then I foreshadowed for you that we're not getting into it now, but really later it's going to be really important to understand that when we do understand the Bainini and the attainable perfection that the book is outlining methods for achieving, it will be important to understand there's a difference between koiches and levushim, between insides and outside self and self-expression, who I am versus what I do. And I'm going to focus mostly on the, the outsides, my behavioral choices. Why? Because choices. I'm going to focus where I have choice. Okay. Now, chapter five, better K. We spoke about Oh, and metaphorically, how do we refer to these modes of expression? What's the metaphorical term that we use for them? Levushim. Clothing. You put on the clothing, right? Soul puts on the clothing. Doing a mitzvah is putting on a piece of clothes for the soul. Just like there is clothing, okay, this is chapter 5 now. Just like there is clothing, there is also food. The soul also has food. 
What is soul food? Cornbread. What? Cornbread? I said grits. Oh, grits. Yes, if you would Google soul food, that would be. But Google would tell you. That's what it would be. Black eyed Yeah. But in Siddic terminology, or more specifically in Tanya terminology, the food that the soul consumes, as opposed to the garments that the soul wears, is that activity, well, like eating is an activity, but it sticks with you for a while, right? Lifetime, what do they say? Moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips, right? <laughs> That's true, the ladies are saying, it's true, so true. You eat the cheesecake for 90 seconds. 90 seconds, and what do I have from it? Okay. What is this activity that, that not only it sticks with you, but it becomes you? Like eating. Like when you eat, the food actually becomes part of you. It becomes your flesh and blood. You metabolize the food and it actually becomes you. It becomes more of your body. More of your cells with your DNA. I eat a piece of cheesecake and now, I don't know how long it takes to ask, ask a doctor, but sooner or later that cheesecake now has my DNA. It's wild. Trippy, huh? Bavar HaMalek said, Your Torah is in my innards, my guts, my kishkis. What does it mean? Why does Bavar Where, where would you think Torah should be? In, in my head. Your Torah is in my head. Bavar HaMalek says, no. Your Torah is in my tummy. Why did Bavar HaMalek say, Your Torah is in my tummy? He's speaking to Hashem. He's describing this metaphor. Because you digest it, mm-hmm. and you digest it, and internalize you it. You digest it, and internalize it, and it becomes, it becomes you. Becomes you. Part of you. So these Lubavitcher Bachram, Friday afternoon when they shut the lights in the yeshiva, and they go out with their tefillin, they stand on street corners, excuse me, sorry, Jewish, that type of thing. They go up to this fellow, and they say, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? And he says, get away from me, you're from Lubavitch. <laughs> they said, yeah, we are. He says, I hate Lubavitch. They said, that's not fair. That's not fair. You don't know anything about us. You hate us. You're judging us. He says, I know all about you. I don't know if this next line will have a lot of meaning for everyone, but he says, he says, back in the 60s, my parents sent me to Bedford and Dean. That was the old yeshiva, like in Bed-Stuy. But it was like the Lubavitcher Yeshiva. That's like a little anachronism in Lubavitcher, uh, Lubavitcher in America. It doesn't exist anymore. He says, I went to Bedford and Dean. Oh, no. So then they, they realized the guy got traumatized in Lubavitcher now. Okay, so they said, okay, so just tell us, what happened to you that was so terrible? And the guy says, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. I do whatever I want to do. But because of the stuff that they taught me in Lubavitch, I can never fully enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't stop them. You can't take away somebody's free will. 
You can't take away their free will. Well, you can, but it's immoral. You shouldn't. You should never make someone feel like they don't have free will. But you can give them information. And once somebody knows something, they cannot unknow it. So I come out and I serve the the jello mold with the floating uh, slices of banana in it. It looks so delectable. And I say, by the way, FYI, um, there was a cockroach in the jello mold. But don't worry, I took it out. Ask who's up to hate. And you say, you know what? Maybe if I didn't know. <laughs> but now you told me. I'm sorry. It's not, I cannot. I cannot. I cannot eat it. No, I'm not preventing you. I'm not preventing you from eating the jello. But now I told you information about it. You can't unknow what I know. Toyota has that effect. Toyota is a perspective. It's not just factoids. It's not just becoming, uh, mastering the information. It becomes your worldview. It, 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 it's not software, it's hardware. It becomes the operating system. Which is why, for instance, the Gemara speaks about whether a Talmud Chacham can be Michael his covet. A Torah scholar, is he allowed to forego the honor due to a Torah scholar? And the, and, the, and the argument is based on the fact that why, well, why he wouldn't be allowed to forego that honor, because it's not his honor, it's the Torah's honor. I can forego my own honor, but not the honor of the Torah. But the counter-argument is, and it's based on a verse in Tehillim, I think it's actually the first verse in all of Tehillim. The counter-argument is, what does it say in Tehillim? Betedas Hashem Heftzei, the Yaga. What's it to Hillel here? It's Tayyish Shabbat. I'm not supposed to know. I'm not supposed to know about that. Do it better. We're looking inside. Pasuk base, by the way. It's the second pasuk. Beseiras Hashem Cheftzei, uveseirase Yaga Yemam Vlaila. What does that mean? His desire is for Hashem's Torah, and in his Torah, he meditates day and night. So the Gemara says, Gemara in Kiddushin, that when it says his Torah, the antecedent for the pronoun, the possessive pronoun, his, his Torah, is not Torah's Hashem, Hashem's Torah. The antecedent for that possessive pronoun is the subject of the sentence, the person who is toiling in Torah, or meditating in Torah, rather. So therefore, this is, what, this is Pshat, the way the Gemara reads it, the way you read the verse is, Hashem he desires, the person desires Hashem's Torah, 
And in his Torah, in the person's own Torah, he meditates night and day, or day and night. Because Kolzman, as long as he wanted it, it was Hefzai, he desired Hashem's Torah, it's Hashem's Torah. But after he with sweat equity, and he meditated in the Torah day and night, now it's Torah, it's the person's Torah, and therefore, that's the argument that the Talmud Chachim could be, Moichel could forego his honor, because it is his honor, after all. He made a Kenyan Torah. He acquired that Torah. It became his. Maybe before he learned it, it was Hashem's Torah, but now it's his own Torah. Thanks for the tilt. Very awesome. I went to... Um, I was at a Shabbaton. And most... It was mostly uh, chesidusha, what we call chesidusha types, the Haimisha Oilum. Hungarian chesidim, mostly. So they were on a different, a little bit different schedule than I was for Shabbos, and which is fine, you know. I, you know, I was there to speak, so I tried to just coordinate that I'm available at the times they need me to be available, and then I think when they went to go. Uh, mix of the Shabbos by day, then I went to Daven, Shabbos. So, why am I telling you this? Because by the time I finished Shabbos, they're coming back in Shul, they finished, they benched, and they're coming back in Shul to Daven Mincha. Okay, fine, no problem, I was done with Shabbos, I'm ready for Mincha, no problem. The, the, the issue was that I was Daven Shabbos, so I had my talus, I was wearing my talus. And they didn't have my hat. It was in a hotel. I think my hat was in my room somewhere. So they come in to Davin Mincha, and I decide, okay, fine, I'm going to Davin Mincha with them. I don't know if everyone relates to this uh, conundrum, but if you're the only guy in the whole room wearing a talus at, at, at Mincha, you look funny. Mm -hmm. Nobody's wearing a talus at Mincha. So what did I do? I took off the talus. And I put it on a chair somewhere, and so I'm standing there, you know, just, you know, in black with the quota, no, no talus, but I don't have a hat on. Okay, fine, so I stood in the back, I don't have my hat on. But then they gave me an aliyah. Now, for an aliyah, it's a little different, you have to have a hat. Now, shachris, you'd have your talus, but I took off my talus, and then I was, thought, I was thinking, maybe I should go run and put my talus on, but that looks funny. So, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of um, confused. And so one of the guys hands me the streimel. Yeah, he hands me the streimel. And so I put on the streimel for the Ilya. And one of them says, Rabbi Taub, you better hope this doesn't go viral. <laughs> and I told him, why do you think I'm doing it on Shabbos? <laughs> and he says, you never know. <laughs> so at any rate, I put on the Shtraimel, I have my Leah. very nice, okay. Now, imagine, that's the whole story, that's the story. Imagine that this is the pretend story, the um, theoretical or hypothetical uh, scenario. Imagine now I would come home, and I would say to my wife, let's say I come home from the Shabbaton, and I say to my wife, take a look at me. Do I look different to you? You can't tell. Today, Shabbos Tzumincha, I wore Shtaim. No, I cannot tell that you wore Shtaim. 
if you're wearing a shtimel, I can tell that you're wearing a shtimel. If you wore one, even a minute ago, in another room, and then you walk into the room, oh, can you tell? I was wearing a shtimel a minute. No, I cannot tell. That is the nature of clothing. You have clothing when you have clothing. When you're wearing that article of clothing, you have it. When you take it off, you don't have it anymore. Now, I know that sounds like such a no-brainer. Why are you telling us? Everyone knows this. Okay, 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 but bear with me. Let's juxtapose or let's contrast. Imagine now, I see my friend on the following Shabbos, and I say to him, I just spent three days at a Shabbaton at the hotel with the Hungarians. And I want to tell you something, the Hungarians know how to cook. I'm telling it's a different world. Russian Chassidim, you know, Chabad, they think we know how to cook. No, the Hungarians know how to cook. Russian Chassidim is like, what, 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 what cuisine is in, in their tradition? Like, potatoes. Potatoes, four <laughs> different ways of... Herring, herring, herring. herring and potatoes, right? And so that's cabbage. Lots of Herring, potato, cabbage, that is Chabad cuisine, right? Okay. But the Hungarians, they know how to cook. They know how to, and they know how to bake, and they know, oh. So imagine it's a week after the Shabbaton, I said, I spent, last Shabbos, I spent a weekend, a long weekend, three days, in the hotel with the Hungarians, and I'm telling you, oh, Hashem, I ate so well. And my friend looks at me and says, I can tell. <laughs> well, how can you tell? You weren't there with me. I'm looking at you. I can tell. But you weren't there. You didn't see me having half a kokosh before Shachris and Shabbos. You didn't see that. Well, but I see it on you. What am I saying? When I put on an article of clothing... You used to be a friend then. Huh? You used, you used to be a friend. <laughs> Depends how honest you want your friends to be. <laughs> When I put on an article of clothing, the effect only lasts while I have it. I take it off, it's over. But food, when I consume food, I bring it with me everywhere. And that's Torah. Mitzvahs are the garments of the soul. Torah is the food of the soul. In other words, the mitzvahs have their effect. They beautify the soul, they, or, or the way we discussed it in chapter 4. The, the garments, don't be misled by the term garments. It doesn't mean they're superficial or secondary. The garments being Torah and mitzvahs, garments actually bring the neshama up higher than it is on its own. They lift the soul up into that oneness, because, after all, Hashem and the Torah are one, right? Like the Zayah says, so by doing the Torah mitzvahs, the garments of the soul actually lift us up to oneness with Hashem. But, but it's not permanent. Okay, in, a, in, this, in the spiritual realms where there's no time, so it, it, it's non-temporal, it's eternal. But I'm saying, the effect on me is not the same as when I sit down and I learn a piece of Torah. And even if I put in one hour, let's say I come to a tiny class, Monday's 10.30, I put in an hour. And the guy is good about stopping on time. It's a real hour, okay? It's not just the hour. It's not just the hour. It's not just that you're spending the hour well. It's how that hour affects your entire week. In fact, the main uftu, the main point and accomplishment and benefit of Torah 
is not while you're learning it. While you're learning it, what, what does it tell you to do? It keeps you out of trouble. So for an hour, I'm sitting in a Torah class, at least I'm out of trouble. I'm not causing any damage. But the main thing is, after the class, that thinking gets into your brain. And it's not the hour that you spent thinking Torah. It's how that hour of thinking Torah changes the entire way you will think for the rest of your life. The way you will think about everything else for the rest of your life. So the guy who says, you know, I, I, he, that he's upset because what they taught him in Lubavitch, he can never really, you know, he, he still has his free choice. He can do what he wants, but he can't really enjoy it. You can't unknow what you know. I took the cockroach out of the, the, the jello mold. Enjoy it. That's the point. The point is that Torah is unique. Torah, and by the way, Torah is also a mitzvah. Because there's a mitzvah of learning Torah. So it has both. You get the best of both worlds. When you're learning Torah, you're doing a mitzvah. You're wearing a beautiful outfit because you're occupied in a, in a godly behavior. Like any mitzvah is is. You're wearing beautiful clothing. When you're doing a mitzvah, you're putting on beautiful clothing. The second you finish the mitzvah, it's like you took that outfit off, and now you got to get dressed again, and you got to put on another beautiful outfit. But the uniqueness of Torah is that it's clothing and food. That there's that permanent effect of how the learning restructures your mind and changes the way you subjectively experience everything for the rest of your life. Rewires your brain, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so two questions. First of all, you know, um, you know how people talk about like, if a person experiences dementia or memory loss and all that, right? Like you said, you can't undigest Torah, right? right. So there, meaning is is as a a Talmud Chacham, is their life meaningless once they lose their knowledge with dementia, right? That was right. You've heard that. I'm sure you guys have heard that question. Now, right, like, was it wasted and they can no longer, you know, put that Torah back out there if they don't have it in. So that was one question. And then the other question was um, <clears throat> if it, like, something that becomes our DNA, can we actually pass that DNA to our children? Like, let's say we all strive to, to you know, to be, to know more Torah. Is that spiritually embedded in our in our generation? Wow. Okay. Can I please add to that because it's very related? Uh, maybe that would be the one answer. Okay. When we're talking about you know our godly godly soul knowing, you know knowing something that goes inside of us, didn't godly soul knew that all way? Okay. So when we're talking that Torah affects us, why are we talking about that godly soul being affected? Isn't that somewhere borderline where our animal soul gets affected and then loses it with dementia and the war being passed down to 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 Okay. We have three questions on the table and they're actually all good questions. I know every teacher says all questions are good questions, but these are actually really good questions. I have another question. And a fourth one? <laughs> By the way. Okay, I'll try to open up another tab in the browser. Go ahead. What if someone spends many hours learning, but their soul is not affected? Okay. Okay, fine. Four questions. Is this a Seder? Einstein. We have four questions and we have 13 minutes. We should be able to handle it. First question was about a Torah scholar 
who suffers dementia and loses his Torah learning. So just remember that when we're speaking about rewiring the brain, I, I am speaking literally and figuratively at the same time. Because I'm speaking about it physically, whatever neurologically occurs, but I'm also speaking about it spiritually. The dementia affects the physical hardware. It doesn't affect the actual seichel. The same thing with um, you know, a developmental disability. That person's seichel, remember, let's use Tanya words here. Chapter 3, koichos anefesh, right? There's 10 koichos, which are divided into two categories, seichel and midos, the cognitive and the emotional. So let's say somebody who is developmentally, developmentally <coughs> delayed, or even severely so. That is some type of a breakdown in the interface, in, in the hardware, in the actual physical system. Um, but spiritually, the capacities are intact. The capacities are intact. It's like, you know, I went to England the other, you know, a few weeks ago, and I have my laptop, and I have my charger, but I don't have an adapter, even though there's a, an outlet in the wall. So it's like, there's something not, I can't get that current running through my machine. So it's like, I have the capacities that spiritually, the, the seichel is a spiritual thing. Seichel is not a tangible thing. Seichel, intellect, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not matter, it's, it's energy. So I have the energy, but, I, the, the, but the hardware is breaking down. By the way, that's, what's, that's what death is. Death is not that the soul disappears. It's that the body can no longer contain the soul because the body is breaking apart. So the same thing which, which you're describing is there's a breakdown in the body's capability to channel that, uh, that energy. So the, the vessel is breaking, but the, the light, the energy is still very much intact. I'll put it another way. Everything that that person learned, the neshama still has. And you can look at that in one of two ways. That when, after 120, they go upstairs, they will have the benefit of relearning all of that and gathering the insights and all of the, uh, the pleasure that the soul has in the world to come through the Torah study that it engaged in in this world. Or you could look at it a little bit more Mashiach Dick. You could say like this. When Mashiach comes very speedily and heals everybody, that person's knowledge was always there, and now they'll at least, the, and it's just a matter of fixing the hardware so that everything that they have will be able to run through it. And it's not like they have to relearn it. They won't have to go relearn it. It's still there. Okay, that was question one. This, this is, is this 1A? You want to ask, or is this question five? I, I need to know where to put it. Rishon, Rishon, right? 1A. 1A? Okay, yeah. go ahead. Um, so, what you just said, does that mean, like, with a Gilgal, that the person still, if they, if they learned it, that if they come across that, will be more easily, like, readily... The question is, with, with reincarnation, with a Gilgul, if you learned it in a previous incarnation. So, because this is... I have three more questions in five more minutes, but... Um, so I'll answer very quickly. 
you don't know things that you know from a previous incarnation, but you have the benefit of having known them. And, and it's very simple. It, it says that every soul, that Arizal says, every soul is obligated to reincarnate until it learns all of Torah. So you don't start from scratch. It's cumulative. I hope that answers the question quickly. That was one. Okay. Question two was about when, if, when you eat food, I use the mushroom, you eat a piece of cheesecake, and now, sooner or later, it becomes your DNA. Well, DNA, you pass down to your children. So the stuff that we learned, we pass it down to our children. No. No, we don't. We don't. No, because let's just stay within the framework of the metaphor. I eat cheesecake, and it becomes part of me. It doesn't become part of my children. It becomes more of my flesh and blood with more of my DNA. When I gain weight, it doesn't benefit my kids. But your action affects. Your, your changed oh, my, actions. Oh, now, your if practice. you're going to say, the way that my Torah study will affect my behavior, and my, the behavior that I model and that I teach my children, that affects them 100%. For, for sure, yes. Okay. Question number three was about, then we went over there, right? Yes. Right? And question number three was about, oh, why does the godly soul need to acquire Torah? The godly soul knows all this stuff intuitively. That was the question, right? Okay. And that is 100% correct. Um, the godly soul does not need to study Torah in order to know how to conduct itself. The godly soul intuitively behaves according to Torah. You might even compare it, let's say, to the Ovis and the Mois, the patriarchs and the matriarchs. How did they know how to bake matzah on Pesach when they had when they lived before Matan Torah? Torah wasn't given yet. There was no revelation at Sinai. How did they know to do that stuff? Intuitively. Intuitively. Like you walk into your living room one morning and say, you know what? We should put a vase of flowers right on that, right around that mantle. It would look perfect. So they said, you know what? The first full moon after the vernal equinox? It seems like flatbread is in order. Let's do it. They did it intuitively. So the godly soul knows all this stuff intuitively. That's its instinct. When, when we study Torah, there are two things that happen. One thing is, to answer, I mean, you sort of implied it in the question, or you almost said it, maybe you even said it explicitly. It sounds like then Torah study is really for the animal soul. I mean, did you say it explicitly, or that's what you were hinting at? Uh, that's what I said. That's what you were, yeah, I was hinting to that. That's what you were hinting to. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. The godly soul doesn't need to learn how to think like a yid. <clears throat> Thinking like a yid is the godly soul. It's the animal soul that's learning new, a new way of thinking. So, you could say, one second, one second. You know, I still have another question I have to remember. There's only question three. And there was a 1A. So for one answer is we could say, you know what, Taki, you're right. Torah study is for the animal soul. That the animal should learn how to think like a yid. Another way to answer it, however, is the, the godly, yeah, it is, it is for the godly soul. The godly soul intuitively knows what to do, like a spouse who's like really, really attuned 
like cognitive empathy, like no words need to be exchanged, and the spouse knows exactly what to do or what not to do. Um, that's like the godly soul is, is to God. But it doesn't necessarily understand why. It doesn't necessarily understand why. It just intuitively knows that that would be pleasing at that. You know what? I walk in the door, my spouse makes a certain expression, and it means, and then whatever she says next means the opposite of what she really wants, and actually it means I'm supposed to put down a glass of water and walk out of the room. Okay, right? That's like the godly soul intuitively knows to put on till. But isn't, he doesn't necessarily understand why, which we call time mitzvahs. The reason, the reason. Now, mitzvahs aren't because of a reason, because ultimately it's Hashem's Ratzin, it's his will, and not his seichel. Nevertheless, even in an intimate relationship where you, or especially in an intimate relationship, where you're not questioning that, saying, convince me to do it. I'm doing it, but now I want to get to know you even better. Tell me why you like what you like, so that I can connect you on that level as well. So to answer the question is, for the, for the, for the animal soul, it's simply learning what to do, because he wouldn't know on his own. Intuitively. For the godly soul, it's deeper insight. It's intimacy. Literally, intimacy with God. Intimacy is a, is a play on words. Into me see. When, the, when you find out why Hashem likes what He likes, why He likes what He likes, that's that intimacy that, that the godly soul gains through, that it wouldn't know intuitively, that it gains through Torah study. And the fourth question was, was it from over here? No. Where did it come from? Oh, it was back here. Yeah. We have same question. Someone learns, but it doesn't go in. Oh, 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 yeah, okay. And then the, the fourth question was, what if you, you learn and we learn and we learn and we learn and it doesn't have an effect? How is that possible? It's possible. You know, there's a story. The Maggid of Mezrich, who was the Alter Rebbe's Rebbe, let me see if I can tell this in two minutes and then end on time. I, I really like the idea of ending on time. I think it's the most important thing for a class, more important than saying interesting things, is ending on time. <laughs> it's a life lesson. It's not what you do, it's what you don't do that affects people. Okay. Let's see if I can do it. I'm like running down the clock. This is like end of the... Uh, basketball game and I'm like running down the shot clock and seeing if I can get off a shot before the buzzer. <clears throat> the Magad Mezrich was the Alter Rebbe He once wanted a certain, uh, he heard about a certain Talmud Chochem who he wanted to become his Chosid. So he told uh, Aaron Karlin, that Aaron was often sent on these types of missions. So that Aden Karlino was dispatched, he says, go to this town and find this, his name was Reb Chaim Chaikel. He says, find Reb Chaim Chaikel and bring him to me. Make him a chosid. And I leave up to you, to your discretion, how to do it. So the, um, so Reb, uh, the Karlino, Reb Aden Karlino walks into the base medish where Reb Chaim Chaikel is, is learning, like he, he learns all day. He's a, he's a, he's a masmid. And Rabban uh, Kalina says to him, What's Machman? Baruch Hashem, what's Tosta? What are you doing? He says, I'm learning Taita for its own sake. Sort of like a brush off answer, like, get out of here, you know? So Aaron Kalina says, says in Mishnah and Pirkei in the name of Rabbi Meir, 
that anyone who learns Tater Lishma is that the secrets, the mysteries of the universe are revealed to him. He says, Ogmir, tell me, how are those mysteries working out for you? What mysteries have been revealed to you? He took a bet. Ari <laughs> Karlina, he knew, he knew his customers. Reb Chaim Chaichel says to him, and what am I supposed to do? And the Kalina says, come with me to the Magid. And in other words, Reb Chaim Chaichel was learning and learning and learning and learning. That's all he did was learn. But there was some missing piece. It's not like he had to come to Mezrich and come to the Magid and start learning Torah. He'd been learning Torah his whole life. But there was some missing piece. And when he got it, I would imagine, this part isn't told in the story, but it, it just seems obvious to me, that when he got that piece, it's not like he had to now go back from square one, but whatever that piece was that he would get from the Magid, now everything he'd learned until then would click into place. So we learn, we learn, we learn, we learn. Sometimes... We're making deposits in a 401k. <laughs> I don't know if it's the exact right muscle, but... And there's this missing piece. But once we get it, all that stuff clicks into place. Can it be, can it be removing a piece of yourself? Can it yeah. be removing a piece? Yeah, probably most accurately stated <laughs> it's what you take away more than what you add which is a perfect segue but the best part of a class is knowing not how to say what you need to say during the class but when to end on time <laughs> right? okay. we'll get a two sentence synopsis yeah. of this chapter five. two sentence a synopsis three, yeah. sentences. I'll give you three sentences chapter five uh, no I'll, I'll do it I'll do it in five words I will snap size, I'm not trying to show off, I just think in this case I happen to be able to do it in five words. Um, you are what you eat. That's chapter five.